Thank you, Drake. Appreciate that, and thank you, worship team, <clears throat> for that beautiful time of worship in the presence of God. All that practicing is paying off. Appreciate your leadership, Noah, in leading the team and the practices, and uh, sometimes even feeding them, I understand, bringing little snacks and incentives to uh, keep them coming. <clears throat> Well, we are in the book of Revelation. We have made it to chapter 4. 4 of what, 21, 22? 22 chap, uh, chapters. And um, so we had looked, we've completed Jesus' view of the churches, the seven churches. And we're reminded that the entire book of Revelation is from heaven's perspective. And so the, what we, the material that we covered was Jesus' or heaven's perspective on what's going on in the churches. And we don't always get that same vibe, or we don't always draw the same conclusions if we were to look at those seven churches that Jesus examined, that, that he walks among, we may not have drawn the same conclusions, but this is from heaven's perspective. And the interesting thing as we turn the page to chapter 4 now, we have heaven's perspective on, not the churches, but on heaven itself. And heaven's perspective of what happens in heaven, what's going on in heaven, and it all revolves around the throne of God. So, if we had cameras and we were doing a survey of heaven, if we're if we're taken into it, the first place it doesn't scan, say, green pastures or the beautiful deep waters or mountains or whatever's up there. The first places it goes is it goes right to the throne room of God, the very center, the very core of heaven. And the reason that's an exciting place to be is that heaven is not just about uh, the atmosphere. The most exciting thing about heaven is the God of heaven. The most exciting thing about heaven is the throne, and on the throne sits the God of heaven. So it's the person of heaven. So as we look at chapter 4 and chapter 5, chapter 4 is completely designated to just the throne. I'll, co- I'll cover it in two sermons today and next time. And then chapter 5 really is, is still about the throne. It's just now, we, now we're, we're asking the question in chapter 5, who is worthy to open this seal? John is all upset because a seal, uh, a scroll is, um, is, is uh, exposed and scrolls mean information, knowledge, and it's closed, it's sealed. And he's upset about that. He begins to weep. But these two chapters are all about the throne of God. And this, this part of Revelation just draws us in to another world, another kingdom. And we were reminded this morning that God created not just the earth, but the heavens and the earth. And the heavens are His dwelling place. So all of the creatures and all that will take place in heaven, everything that we will read from this point on, it comes from the throne center, it, it, or the throne. It comes from the command center. All power, all authority for everything in the universe comes from the throne, and on that throne is the person of God. And in heaven, everything, all the creatures are absolutely consumed by the God of heaven. So it's not like they're looking outward at the beautiful vistas of heaven. They are looking concentrated surrounding the throne of God because He is there and they are in His presence. And and they just are enthralled and consumed 
by the person and the presence of God in heaven. And so, sadly, while, while we're down here falling short of the glory of God, Romans 2.23, they are up there falling on their faces before the presence of God in holiness, innocence, and purity. Nothing is fallen in heaven. We don't know what that's like yet. I mean, all we do is hear report after report of evidence that our earth is broken. That things aren't as they should be. That's, that's what our, our lives are filled with this, these kind of things that we have to deal with. In heaven, nothing is fallen. Nothing is broken. Everything is exactly where it should be. Everything in heaven, all the creatures know exactly what they're supposed to do. They know why they were created and, and they do it out of the greatest sense of delight and joy Living the perfect life, as we would say down here in heaven. There's no confusion about, you know, what we, we pray for God's will. We want to know God's will. We're confused about what He wants a lot of times in our lives. In heaven, there's no confusion about what you should be doing with every second of your existence. You know because you're so close to the presence of God. And so it's no wonder that we find creatures of heaven bowing before Him. We sang that song, Worthy, Worthy, Worthy. That's in chapter 5. And, and just, for a, just for a little peek into chapter 5, it answers the question why we would do anything that we do. Why would we come to church? Why would we bother being Christians? It's not just to edify one another. It's not just to make friends. It's not just to, for good singing. The reason we are here is because He is worthy for us to be here. And that's the foundation. And a lot of times we put the opposite on top. But the whole reason that we do anything we do, the reason we show up is not about ourselves. Heaven has that straight. It's because He is worthy of our presence. He's worthy of our heart, our emotions, our minds, and everything that we are and have. The King sits on the throne. The, all of the mysterious things that we will learn about in this book of Revelation, uh, the, the seven trumpet blasts, and, or the seven seals, and the two witnesses, and the bowls, all of this mysterious stuff comes from, happens, is directed from the command center of the throne of heaven by the triune God. And so it's almost like the first glimpse we get of heaven in this book is right there in the throne. That's where we need to start. If we start out here in the peripheral, we won't understand how things are supposed to operate. We won't understand the intense adoration, the attitude of, of worship that takes place. This opening scene that I will read shortly, it's just an absolutely intense scene of worship. One of the uh, alabaster jar song that we sang where we're, we're just offering ourselves as offerings to Him. That's heaven. It's like every creature in heaven is before the throne as this poured out offering. Here I am. Here I am. I'm glad to give myself to you. I couldn't be in a better place or state of mind. There couldn't be more joy in my heart my cup overflows, offering myself to you, 
holy, righteous, loving God. That's how the scene opens in heaven. It's intense. Now, as we read this book, and I know I say it a lot, but we have to be reminded it is symbolism. And so we want to use our imaginations. We'll come closer to understanding it more accurately by using our, mind, our imaginations, not by trying to chart everything and draw everything. All the eyes and things that we'll read about later on. And the, the looks of the creatures. And even what we read about this morning with the gems and the rainbows and the light show that's going to take place. Use your imagination. That's the, the big picture. It's symbolism. And so John uses lots of likes. You know, it's like this. It's like that. It's not that, but it's like that. I liked um, the quote by G.K. Chesterton. He says, The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head. And it is his head that splits. I really like that because that's what this book is all about. It's about inviting us up into here. It's not trying to get heaven down into here into our brains so we can make sense of everything. Then we lose it and our heads split. So John has this task that God has given him. Write these things. Write these things, John. He has this this task, this challenge to describe things that he's seeing in this vision that are from another world that we, we don't have direct connections to. And so it's, it's symbolism. And that without that, that point of reference, and so there's a lot of likes, you know, it's like this. It reminds me just a little bit, not a whole lot, but just a little bit of how the surfer dudes talk. Because everything is like, but it's not just that, but it's also extreme. Like, dude, totally awesome, dude. That wave was epic. I am stoked. Everything is just extreme. And it's a little, not exactly like that, but a little bit like that in this description. So that's what we have to work with here this morning. And in all of this symbolism, uh, we behold just a beautiful doctrine of worship. So with that said, I want to look at, I'm going to read actually the whole chapter. It's only 11 verses, but we'll only cover the first three this morning. But it's important for us to see the context that, that we are invited into. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and 
peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things and by Your will they existed and were created. And so you can see why this morning I have one point Simple point, the throne. It's the throne. Uh, next time we'll look at the throne in, in the, uh, from the perspective of the prepositions that John uses because there's things that are above the throne and beside the throne and around the throne. And so I'm just going to take some of those prepositions next time and we'll examine it from that perspective. But in verse 1, the throne, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. After this, of course, is after uh, the, the, the words spoken to the churches, after the vision that John had of the seven churches. This comes after that. And the first thing he sees is an open door. Not a stairway to heaven for you 70s Led Zeppelin fans, but an open door. This is not like that stairway. It's more like, um, well, from this perspective, it's more like the doorway in the Lion, the Witch, and the, the Wardrobe when the kids get into the wardrobe and they're, they, they've had these coats and it's kind of dark in there and they're finding their, their, their way and they push through them, and immediately they open up into an entirely different world with new creatures, different creatures, and everything. It's just a whole new world. And that's what happens to John as he is invited through this open door into the heavens. The voice that beckons him, he says, it's like. It's like that trumpet. It's the same voice I heard in chapter 1, verse 10, as Jesus called him into his first vision. It's this this distinct like kind of voice that he will compare to some things. So when God speaks, it's, it's commanding, it's intimidating. What do you compare it to? Well, it's it's kind of like thunder. It's like trumpets or shofars here. There, there's this, this um, distinct sound and it's not his literally literal voice but all of this happens at the same time as his voice whatever that sounds like 
comes to where John can hear what he's saying. There's, there's, it's like a storm that's taking place when God speaks. It's, it's a cosmic disruption, if you will. All of nature is in tune to this and comes to, not, not the, to, to the service of God as He speaks to His creatures and to John. Now, trumpets are important in Scripture. I'm reminded of the command to the Israelites as they were taking over the conquering the promised land, one of the strange commands to march around the city of Jericho. And on the seventh day, they blew their trumpets. And one of the trumpets had um, three different purposes for the most part in, in ancient times and even to this day sometimes. Uh, to herald a king. You watch it in the movies. When a king is introduced, a lot of times trumpets will play. Um, also for judgment. A trumpet will blow for judgment and we will see that a lot in this book. The sounding of trumpets. It initiates um, God's wrath. And also for victorious warriors, they get a trumpet sound and music when they return as well. And Jesus, of course, is all three of these, but it's... It's this, this energetic, cosmic kind of voice here. And it happened on earth, not just in heaven. The same thing happened in real life, not as a vision. We read about it in Exodus 19, verse 18 and 19, and it was the giving of the Decalogue. That terrifying scene and experience that the Israelites had. They were shaking now Mount Sinai was wrapped, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. I don't know how all that happened, but you have all of these uh, noises and and scenes of nature, the storms, and yet in all of that loudness, God speaks. Uh, interesting that heaven is a loud place. And you're going to see that people don't, I, I haven't found any whispering yet. It's, they sing loudly and they say loudly and they speak loudly. Everything is loud there. So it's this total cosmic um, Disruption, if you will, will the forces of nature come to the assistance and the appearance and the words of God to make an impact, of course, on His people. And John is beckoned through this door by this trumpeting voice into the heavens. And everybody wants to know, did, did he really, was he really taken up? Like bodily? Like God just, here, and let me lift you up into heaven. Or was this just a vision? And he experienced it all while he was in the Spirit. And his feet were still planted on earth. And to answer that question, I'm going to defer to another saint, to another disciple that had a very similar experience, and that would be the Apostle Paul. And here's how he describes it, and this is his conclusion. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4, we've... We studied this. I know a man in Christ 
who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man who caught, was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So that's my answer. Was he literally taken up in the body? Or was it just a vision out of the body? I don't know. God knows. John knows. But here's what the Lord tells him while he's there. He tells him things that must take place. Now, there's a mustness, if you will, about this vision and about the words, the things that John is seeing. They're not just anything. These are the things that must take place. So as R.C. Sproul would say, this is the, what the decretive will of God. There are uh, the, the perceptive, preceptive will are things that God wants, but He allows us to break His rules and not follow His rules and His commands. But there are decrees that are commanded in this universe because God sits on the throne and they will take place. They they must take place. They're not negotiables. They're not going to change no matter what happens with circumstances. What comes or goes, these must take place. You know, there are modern theologies uh, that teach that God um, either doesn't know everything, He's not omniscient, or He chooses not to know things. And one of those theologies is called open Theism, and it's called open theism because it, it leaves the door open for, um, for God and the future in the sense that the future is not set. Not even God knows the future because He's choosing not to know the future. And the reason He's doing that is because He's a relational God and He wants to invite man into the decision-making promise process so that man feels significant and important and not just like some puppet here. So the future is not settled. The future depends on what man will decide whenever God invites him into uh, his counsel to decide what things will look like. So in that sense, the future is open. It's not predetermined. It's not predestined. It is yet to be seen. God doesn't know it or chooses not to know it and we don't know what the future is. And that's closely tied to something even newer on the scene which they're calling relational theology. Now, we know God is an extremely relational God and so this is really tricky. Relational theology. But uh, we, we know that God loves us. We know that the Holy Spirit lives in us and it's all about a relationship. Absolutely. God saves us and recreates us to, to, um, to, to be one, to create this oneness. Uh, we're family members. I mean, look how God describes the church. It's this incredibly close relationship. Um, he accommodates us. He hears us. We'll read about the prayers and the places, the place of the prayers of the saints and how they please God in the heavens. He loves to communicate with us. All of these things are true. But where it, it goes off is it takes it to a level of claiming that we affect God to the point of changing His plans. 
um, because he's so relational and he wants to hear what we have to say that we affect him to the point of him changing his plans to where there are things that, not, that are not going to take place, that are not substantiated. His, it's changing things so that there are things that are not fixed. I'm sure that you can see some problems with that. It's tricky, but there are a lot of problems with that. Now, we just read in Revelation 3.20 how relational God is. He, he gives us this picture. I, I stand at the door and knock. And I want to come in and, and eat with you. I want to do life with you. It's, it's an intimate invitation of relationship. God is very relational. And we, we feel his love. We know his love. We experience his love because he came and he, as an offering, he gave himself on our behalf and died for our sins. We, rele- we believe that God is so relational that he loves us so much that he Rather than asking us how things should turn out, he determined by his sovereign will how things should turn out because he is all wise, he's all knowing, and he's perfect. And so any decision that he makes can't be improved upon. So what will we bring to the table? God has a plan. He has a will. He's a being with desires. And he carries, he's got the power to carry out his desires. So we believe that what we need for our betterment is God's plan for us, not our plan for God. And our whole life is about conforming ourselves to Him, not trying to conform God to ourselves. So it's tricky, but it's important. I encourage you to to beware and put your your feelers out there for these kind of theologies that, that creep in. They're so subtle. Man makes the plans, but God directs his steps. And, here's, and that's a proverb. Here's another proverb that just really speaks of the sovereignty of God in the end, how the Lord's will comes into play. And that's Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, you just take the most random thing you can do in the world, throw some straws or sticks out onto the ground. You can't get any more random than that. And even that God works in. And so this... There are things that, that will take place. There are things that must take place because God is God. That's what makes Him God. And He sits on this beautiful throne in this beautiful place called heaven. He's loving. He's kind. He's gracious. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that He should change His mind. Not a man that He should lie or the son of man that He should change His mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? One of the things I loved most about God is that what he says, he sticks to. He's faithful to his promise and he doesn't change. Oh, wait, I just came up with another, a better plan. Oh, wait a minute, I got a better one than that. That we know. And if there's things that must not take place, then how can we sit in here with, with the future in our laps? These things, the God on the throne is telling John in this vision, they must take place. The future is not open. So we want to change ourselves. What things, very, very, very simply, what things must take place that are non-debatable, that are decreed by God? If we look at this book, God must be worshipped. That's going to take place. That's non-negotiable. No matter what we think. God must be worshipped. God's enemies must be defeated. That's what this book is about. 
And God's children, God's faithful, must be blessed because He has promised a blessing upon us in the new heavens and the new earth. Moving on to verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This would be the throne in heaven. The Scripture speaks about heaven in three different spheres or elevations, if you will. Uh, We have the heavens that we can see, the birds fly in it, or you can hang glide in it, and if you're brave enough, you can parachute in the first heaven. That's the first one. That's where we that's the first thing we see when we look up is what scriptures call the first heaven. As a matter of fact, thinking about looking up and talking about your imagination in the first heavens reminds me of a movie I watched called Up. I recommend it. It's a good movie. And it really uses its imagination. I think it was Pixar and you had Grumpy Carl and Little Russell and the dog Doug. And they go up. Excuse me? Squirrel. So anyway, that's a little distraction. But we're looking up. And that's what came to my mind is that house floating up into the first heaven. The second heaven is, is space. We would call it space. It's where the space rockets go and so forth. It's where the, the illuminaries are. And then in the third heavens, that's all the way up. That's the highest you can go in the description of heavens. And that's where the throne is, wherever that is. That's where the throne of God is. And it's interesting that when they described uh, in Hebrews the ascension of Christ, it says He ascended through the heavens. And you get this picture. There He goes through the first. There He goes through the second. And there He is. He's at home in the third heavens where the throne of God takes place and can be found. So that is the center of all of this vision. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 In the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Psalm 47 8 God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. And that's the throne that we're talking about here in Revelation. Throne of course represents a kingly rule. What else could it mean? You have, the, you have special seats. You have thrones. And there are more thrones in heaven. The elders have their thrones. Whoever they are, we don't know yet. Those 24 elders. You might think you know who they are. But we don't know yet. But they have their thrones. And they sit on their thrones except when they're on their face worshiping God. And they could be doing anything at any given time. So there are thrones there. And it represents authority. It represents power that you've either, you've either gained it or you've been given this kind of designated power to exercise. So all that happens in this book comes from the throne. Of the 22 chapters in this book, 17 chapters you're going to hear about the throne of God. So it's no wonder to me that, that we, are introdu- uh, we are immediately taken into heaven and we go zoom right into the throne of God, the very command center. Here. Now we, we understand thrones, right? Because that is something that we have a connection with in our world. Uh, we can still see kings or queens sitting on thrones. We see it in real life. You know, we might see it in the movies. And it's this idea of it being set apart, royalty, 
Uh, it's, it's, it's a designated seat. Only one person can sit. It's a, a throne made for that person. Or, or even the idea of designated parking. Don't park in somebody's spot. You didn't earn that. This is for this particular person of importance. It's designated. That's the idea of the throne. Kings and queens sit on thrones. Often, mostly in mainline um, churches, you will see many times up on the stage a nice chair that looks kind of like a throne that the pastor gets to sit in. And the idea is that uh, when he comes to preach, he has been given authority by God to speak his word. And so it's kind of a, a designated seat, if you will, in that sense. So our culture understands this. We used to use this idiom. They don't hear it as much anymore, but the king of the castle. He is the king of the castle. Kind of referring to the man of the house, or dad. We call him dad. Dad's the king of the castle. In your, in your home, does dad have his... Uh, favorite chair, his designated chair, uh, his command center where he wields his decrees and holds the remote control with all the power and chooses what channel the whole family has to watch. He sits on his throne and makes these decisions for the family because he's the king, if you will. And that chair is strategically positioned. And everybody knows that at least when dad is home, you don't sit in his chair. because That's dad's chair. It's the same kind of concept here. The absolute best example, as I read about this, my mind went immediately to a show I used to watch just a few years ago back in the 70s called All in the Family with Archie Bunker. I didn't understand half of it when I looked at it and watched it as a kid. Archie Bunker, very vocal, uh, prejudiced, conservative, blue-collar worker. He ruled the roost. And in his home, um, he had his throne. He had his chair. And you did not sit in Archie's chair. That was his chair. It was so important that sometimes, literally, whole episodes were written about Archie's chair. And on one such episode, Mike, his meathead son-in-law, who was liberal, the exact opposite, you know, he fixed himself a nice sandwich and Archie's not home and so he's going to sit in Archie's chair, the nicest chair in the house, and he's going to watch TV and he sits in it and it breaks. So the whole episode is about, <gasps> he's terrified he just broke Archie's chair because it's designated here for the head of the house, kind of a, a sacred place, if you will. So, by the way, that chair was so important, and that sitcom was so popular, that chair was designated to the, uh, see if I can find this here, some museum. Uh, yeah, Smithsonian, oh, you've seen it. Smithsonian National Museum of American History in D.C. It was designated, you can go see Archie's throne if you're so inclined, in a museum there. So, you know, as I said, typically three different kinds of people would sit on thrones. You have judges, uh, you had kings, and you had warriors, victorious warriors 
there. He who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, it's hard to, to picture this, but this is like a, uh, it's an incredible, brilliant, bright, radiant scene. And the carnelian I, I hear is, is red. Uh, the jasper, I think, is, is uh, white or translucent. Of course, the um, emerald is green. And you know what valuable gems do. Valuable gems, if you catch the light just right, they just radiate. They're even more beautiful. So at this throne, you have these gems, you have this rainbow. It's kind of like a light show. It's a beautiful, beautiful demonstration here. Um, I can't think of anything that would be like it. I mean, if you, maybe if you combined, uh, this is kind of degrading, but we try our best, say like Super Bowl shows that, where they just pull out all the stops and they have smoke and fire and loud sounds and lights flashing everywhere. And then the, the, uh, the crown jewels, the royal crown jewels display. If you kind of compared those two together, maybe, like, kind of, you might have something like this. The crown jewels, you can see those in London. I've never seen them. I understand that, well, what, well you can visitors can go into the Tower of London and see them. And I understand that there's guards that are like always trying to make you keep going because people just want to sit there and stare at them because of the jewels and the crowns and the weapons that have jewels embedded in them. It's absolutely stunning. So move on, move on, move on. But it's, it's just priceless. And we have this priceless scene with the king on the throne here like some kind of majestic light show. It's beautiful. It's colorful. God is not sitting on a wooden rocker up in heaven on the porch. He is sitting on the throne of God. And He is surrounded by beauty and brilliance. And with all of that, I want to close with this quote from D.A. Carson. As we drink all of this in, as we think about all of this and wind down, even this can't really do it justice. He says, how do you describe a God who is whiter and pure, morally speaking, than the driven snow? How do you describe a God who is more magnificent than the most stunning sunset? How do you describe a God who is more entrancing than a million twinkling stars? How do you describe a God the knowledge of whom is more nourishing than the best of foods. How do you describe a God whose love is more faithful and understanding and sensitive and self-giving than the ideal mother? How do you describe a God who's more awesome than all the unleashed forces of nature? God covers Himself with light as with a garment, Psalm 104 says. That's one metaphor. First Timothy 6 says, The Lord dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or ever can see. How do you describe a God like that? Indeed, the most important thing about this description is that God is not described. Now that's profound. Because we go to all these lanes to try to wrap our minds and get a vision, and yet we, we don't. 
to the extent that we can nail it, to the extent that we can draw it, that we can take a picture of it and say this is God because whatever we would come up with would be an idol and it would fall way short of how beautiful and majestic God really is. So we have it's like or it's as this. God's transcendent. He's, he's otherworldly. He's of a, a different substance. He, he, this is creation. He's not a part of His creation. He is above this. And we might be tempted to bring it down and try to fit it into our heads and to bring God and the transcendent and the holy other into this little thing. And I'll say little thing about my own brain. You can call yours what you want. But compared to all of this, it is small. Rather than bringing that in here, God invites us up into this book of His revelation. He invites us into it, into His world, into His heavens, into His being. And I would rather do that than the opposite and have my head split. May God bless the preaching of His Word.